You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. A few years ago, I picked up a book called Drug Lords of Oakland, the untold stories of California's most notorious kingpins of the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. It was written by a guy named Titus Lee Barnes, and he includes an astonishing amount of biographical information about these drug lords in the book. In some cases, he even talks about you know what these guys were like in grade school. In other words, it's a really personal book that brings to life people who most of us might only know from seeing their mugshots on the news. So how was Titus Lee Barnes able to paint such a vivid picture of this secretive world? The answer is that he was in the streets, working in the, shall we say, underground economy alongside some of the gangsters who he writes about. I wanted to interview Titus, but I had some trouble getting in contact The book was self-published. There wasn't much info about it online, uh, but I did find him on Facebook, and I sent him a message. I never heard back. Then, suddenly, in late 2023, out of the blue, I got a call. It was Titus Lee Barnes. He wanted to talk. Titus wasn't living in Oakland anymore, but he'd been thinking about the old days, and he was ready to share his story. We stayed on the phone for hours and hours and ended up having several long conversations. Titus is 53 now, and he had a message he wanted to get out. And I also think he just wanted to reminisce a little about growing up in the town. I'll tell you a story. Uh, I remember one time me and my cousins were uh, just hanging around. So one of them was like, well, let's go get some weed. So uh, uh, everybody's like, all right, well, let's do that. So he went down his keys to his mom's car. And uh, we drive down to a Royal Park, right? I had never been to a Royal Park. You know, I'm from West Oakland. So when we came off Bancroft, I don't know if you've ever been there, but you could hear the music from the cars and the boom boxes uh, like a block away. So when we pull on the block, you got like dudes out there, you know, with, with, with terms and, 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 you know what I mean, braids and, you know, with the pants, you know, Levi's sagging and, you know, they got cars lined up and down, the, you know, the front of the uh, park, you know, little young ladies riding around on roller skates. I was like, this is ghetto heaven. <laughs> this is like a ghetto utopia, you know, and, and, and when we got what we was looking for, it went on about our business, but that was like one of those, those, those moments where you, I was like, well, I, I, I live in the ghetto and I like it. I've always been a little squeamish about covering true crime stories. Shows about real-life gangsters, they're often really sensationalized, you know, glorified violence served up as entertainment and all that. And I'm not going to start moralizing here, but I appreciated Titus's perspective because he doesn't fall into that trap. I mean, <laughs> sure, he does describe the fancy cars and lavish parties and parts of his book do you read like an action movie, but he's also honest really honest, about the heartbreaking consequences people had to face, even in his own life. So so my personal record, and I'm not going to go into too much detail, but my personal record at the, at the height of my, at my game, because I was, I was nice with it, uh, you know what I mean? And uh, I think I was about 42 when uh, uh, I left the streets this time. But, um, and I was in the streets full-fledged from... 
1982 till I was 42. So, you know what I mean? That's like 30 whole years, you know, and then turning in and out of uh, the institutions, you know, for short periods of time. But I was in the streets. So, but my personal record is I made $100,000 in one handshake. And that's where I leave it at. You know what I'm saying? So I, I was doing good, but, um, and I had, um, I had a business, I had a car wash, I had credit cards. I had everything that the average, uh, working class person had, but the only difference was I had unorthodox, unorthodox methods of, uh, generating my income. Um, which I regret now because the time I spent away, um, you know, I lost a lot, uh, you know, um, uh, my children, you know, I, 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 I owe, I owe them more than to be absent because our presence is the most needed, um, element in the family dynamic is, uh, the male's presence. So at the end of the day, was it worth it? No. Oakland's annual homicide rate was at its highest when Titus was a young man in the 1980s and early 90s. After mostly declining for years, the numbers have started to tick back up again since the pandemic. But numbers aren't the whole story. According to Titus, the nature of street crime here has changed in some fundamental ways since he was out on the corners. The funny thing is uh, that... You know, you, you had, oh, geez, you had million-dollar spots in Oakland, California. Let me just be clear here. Like, you know, they had teenage millionaires outside on the block. Like, you can go out to the door in the morning to go to school with a backpack on, and on my block, you come outside, you might see a 911 Porsche parked out there behind a Corvette, behind a Mercedes-Benz, and these cars were all owned by young men. So I'm saying that to say, not not to glorify, but I'm saying that to say that these dudes, you know, they they, they had they had machines out there. They were getting money. So for you to come out there and burglarize the house, snatch a purse, do something that would be uh, uh, described as making the spot hot, or you know, what I'm saying doing some hot stuff, these dudes would pull you to the side like, look, hey, hey, uh, little man, like uh, you tripping. You can't do that around here. Like, you know what I mean? You're burning the spot up. I wasn't expecting to hear about the potential public safety benefits of having neighborhoods controlled by drug kingpins. But this conversation was full of surprises. Titus survived three decades in the streets of Oakland, and he accumulated some fascinating insights about crime. Insights that I think are particularly relevant now. Because, as always, if you want to understand our current crisis, you've got to understand the history of what led us here. This is East Bay Yesterday. I'm Liam O'Donoghue. Stay tuned. We had a lot of nice areas to, you know, spend our time at. Uh, so we had a lot of fun around there. You know, I, I have a lot of fond memories. I mean, I, I wouldn't change my upbringing for, you know, for nothing. I mean, I, I, I loved it. Titus's family came to California during the World War II boom years. 
At the time, Oakland was redlined, so African-American families had limited options on where to live. The Hoover Foster neighborhood was seen as one of the best options. The California Hotel right there on San Pablo was a hotspot of black culture. Neighbors looked out for each other. Everything seemed to be within walking distance. Then it went downhill. After factories started leaving Oakland to move to the newly emerging suburbs, which were also redlined to keep out black residents, unemployment here shot up. Around the same time, freeways came in. The noisy and dirty construction process demolished dozens of blocks and left the neighborhood surrounded by looming concrete corridors. A few years before Titus was born, the Black Panther Party established their first breakfast program in Hoover Foster because so many kids there were going to school hungry. Titus was raised in the heart of this neighborhood, and when he was a kid, a lot of people started referring to the area as Ghost Town. His mom often worked two jobs, but the family still relied on food banks and government assistance. Growing up in the 1970s, young Titus, he tried to make the best of it. The church, which is in between Brockhurst and 32nd, on market, there's a little white church right there. And that's where all the residents in the area used to go get, you know, the government cheese. And they used to give out the free cheese and stuff, which is, to this day, the best cheese I've ever had in my life. <laughs> There's a famous movie about Oakland pimps called The Mac. The director wanted it to look as realistic as possible, so they filmed some of the street scenes in Ghost Town. Sex workers and dealers hung out on San Pablo at all hours, and the neighborhood came to be known as kind of a red light district. As a child, Titus witnessed all of it. He vividly remembers this era of big cars and bright clothes. These dudes were like, they were just bright, colorful cats, like, you know, you know, they were driving nice cars. You know, back in those days, the Cadillac Seville was like one of the most uh, uh, beautiful cars you could see, the way they had them painted and stuff. And it was just an easy transition for me. When he says it was an easy transition, he's talking about getting into the street life. He started hustling when he was still in junior high. You know, going to Marcus Foster, and then when you, when you, when you come out of school, you know, uh, you go up to the store on Grove Street, which on 31st and Grove, they had uh, Gears Liquors, and there was a Pac-Man machine and a Defender machine, and, you know, that's where a lot of people hung out. So if you like video games, you go in there in the store, and you put a couple quarters up on the, the game and, you know, play, and then you just watch the show. There's a lot of action in that area. Uh, and then... The, the person who I ended up getting into the game was I had a younger buddy. Uh, he was like a year younger than me. Uh, uh, his name is uh, Grady Edwards. Uh, God bless his uh, memory, right? But uh, he used to tell me all these stories about, you know, this cat. Like, oh, man, my partner, um, such and such and such and such, you know, he got a car. We've been having all this fun. So I wanted to investigate some of that fun. And so when he took me to the spot where this individual was at, you know, everything he told me was true. So that's how I became a member of what they call the Hollywood Crew, where they started at the Silver Dollar on San Pablo. And uh, I believe 24th, there was a little hotel right there with a, uh, uh, a lot of, you know, pimps and hustlers and drug addicts up in there. And, you know, and then we just being there just doing what teenagers do, 
you know, a few uh, 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 nefarious activities that took place that we participated in, and that's how I got in the game. <laughs> that's how I got in the game, and uh, a lot of people knew me in the area, so I pretty much could move about freely how I wanted to and do what I wanted. And uh, by the time I looked around, I mean, my pockets had the months. Like, you know, I wasn't going in the blazer looking for the few dollars my mama left no more because I had my own money. I was stashing in shoeboxes and stuff. So that's what uh, happened to me. But uh, it's really a cautionary tale because uh, out of all those dudes that came and went and made all that money, I mean, what do we have left standing as a testament to their efforts? The biggest source of conflicts between rival crews of crack dealers in the 80s was turf. So much of the violence that Titus describes in this book was sparked by disputes over territory. More corners meant more money, so squads were always looking to expand. Obviously, it's a pretty risky strategy. And Titus, he learned this the hard way, the first time he got shot. Yeah, so the short form is... um... And I'm a, I'll leave the names out and the streets out, but uh, there's a section the section near Ghost Town that uh, a buddy of mine and, and, and I were freelancing on, right? Technically, uh, we shouldn't have been there, but based on, you know, we had the, the inventory, you know, it was an easy thing to do. So a uh, couple guys, you know, weren't too happy about it. So one day I was out there and... I ended up getting robbed. So as as the people were leaving, you know, and these dudes walked away. They didn't run away. They walked away, right? As the people were leaving, my you know, my my buddy, he pulls up. So uh, I go to the car to, you know, to grab, you know, uh, something to kind of like uh, uh, even, you know, even, the, you know, the plans here, right? So as I'm doing that, they look back and then they see what I was doing and then they approach the car and start letting off. And so I jumped in the car, um, and uh, yeah, that was the first uh, first time. Titus was lucky to be alive. He got shot in the back, the leg, and the jaw. I asked if he thought about quitting after that. Uh, no, no, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't understand the severity of it. Uh, it was funny because I'm sitting in Highland Hospital and. Um, the police come in there and they're like, well, what happened? And I was like, I don't know, man. And, you know, it was a, a drive-by, you know, those type of situations, you just start making stuff up. And uh, one of the officers was like, well, what kind of gun was it? <laughs> and I was like, well, I don't know. I didn't ask him, you know. <laughs> he got shot again in 1991. And it was basically the same scenario. He was dealing on someone else's turf. And again, As soon as he healed up, he was back in the streets. Another major threat that he faced out there, of course, was the Oakland Police Department. They could be even more dangerous than a rival crew. When I grew up, it was a common understanding. I mean, my mom told me, the police aren't your friends. Don't stop. Don't talk to them. You know, mind your business. But the thing about them was, is they had individual officers who had the fear of God in the streets. You know what I mean? Like I said before, you know, you had Officer Grimminger. You know what I mean? He used to ride around with his crew and, and they used to ride around with Halloween masks on and bounce out 
and uh, they started the uh, the mark money things like a guy pull up and buy some drugs with uh, a, a marked bill and the bill, the serial number to the bill will be uh, copied and then boom, they'll pull up and arrest the person that just made the sale and then look on their clipboard and say, okay, well, yeah, that's the bill in his pocket. Go through the money in his pocket and, and now he has a case. But they used to pull up and, you know, beat people up, take them to alleys and, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, it's, it, a lot of times they would pull up and, and, and take stuff from you and just keep it and, and leave you out there. Years of experience taught Titus how to navigate the criminal justice system, but he still remembers how scary and disorienting it was to be thrown into this world for the first time. The average person that gets into the legal system, you know, after they're 18 years of age, they don't even have a semblance of understanding of what the legal system is uh, 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 about. I mean, you go in there and the judge reads the charges and then and slams the gavel and you're, you're, you're getting ushered out the courtroom asking the bailiff, what, what did she say? Uh, what did he say? Like, what? Well, you'll get some paperwork, and then you, you don't know what's going on. So I, I don't know if you've ever been to jail, but, I mean, you know, the first time the door slams, it's like you're in there crying. Like, what the hell is going on? Like, I, I've never experienced this before. You know what I mean? I asked Titus how he managed to survive so many years in such a dangerous profession. And this was another one of those answers that surprised me. Looking back, he thinks that getting locked up might have actually saved his life. As far as being still being here, breathing and walking the earth, uh, it was by the grace of God because, I mean, it was, it was, it was a snake pit. It was terrible. And I, I got bit several times. Um, uh, I'm just fortunate to have made it. And I, I will say this as well. Uh, jail saved me a lot, too. It, yeah, jail saved me a lot. Like, you know, I, I, I honestly believe that if I would have just had a straight run from 1982 until now on the streets, that there might not be no me. Like, you know what I mean? So a lot of people, they have a saying that, you know, a lot of people don't get arrested, they get rescued. So I think I got rescued several times because I haven't been to a, institution, a jail or institution yet that's as bad as the streets are. By me growing up and, uh, and, you know, being a juvenile hall and stuff like that and reading a lot, books, you know, you, uh, Iceberg Slam, Donald Goins and stuff like that. And I was like, well, wow, this is kind of similar to what, you know, I'm experiencing in, 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 in my life growing up in the neighborhood I'm from. So it was always in my mind like, wow. So in my office notes I wrote, uh, there's a quote that says, if you want to write a book, think about a book you want to read and then write it. So once I actually had the time to sit down, uh, basically all I did was just purge my memory of, you know, all the experiences and some of the colorful characters I encountered in my life. One thing that worked in Titus's favor as an author is the fact that Oakland was home to some of the most notorious kingpins of the late 20th century. So he had plenty of material to work with. If you poke around on YouTube, you can find a whole slew of videos dissecting the exploits of various well-known gangsters. For better or worse, the public has a huge appetite for stories of drug lords. Case in point, 
There's a new Netflix show about Griselda Blanco that went straight to the top of the charts when it debuted last month. But one thing about Griselda, aka the Black Widow, that the Netflix show doesn't get into is an absolutely insane story that Titus covers in his book. Basically what happened was there was a small-time dealer from East Oakland named Charles Cosby. One day, Charles, he sees this news segment about a notorious Colombian drug lord named Griselda Blanco. Uh, Blanco was locked up in federal prison right over in Dublin, which is only about a half hour away from Oakland. So Charles decides that the so-called cocaine godmother would make a pretty fun pen pal, and he strikes up a conversation. Pretty soon, he's not only Griselda's boyfriend, he's also her new point man for moving kilos all over the country. Huge weight. Practically overnight, Charles went from being a neighborhood hustler to one of the biggest plugs on the West Coast. I won't give away the whole story. It's also covered extensively in the documentary Cocaine Cowboys 2, Hustlin' with the Godmother. But for Titus, this wasn't some distant saga that he learned about from a TV show. When Brookville Charles hit the cocaine jackpot, everybody in the streets of Oakland knew about it. And for some, this rags-to-riches story was an inspiration. Well, it's obvious that he was a thinker because if you if you really think about his story, like you're sitting back smoking on a doobie and you see a commercial or a newscast about someone who's um, on her level, right? And like, and then you write her a letter, like who would think of that? Like, so he was, it was kind of genius. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then, it was kind of genius, and then it, 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 and it worked. Like, he shot a shot, and it worked. Uh, but her son, Lil Mike, used to be at the sideshow and everything. Like, he was an honorary Oakland cat when he was in the town. And I think that was her baby boy. But, yeah, he used to be all at the sideshow, and he loved Oakland. The uh, Little Mike that Titus mentioned, by the way, is Michael Corleone Blanco, who is currently suing Netflix over the show about his mom, Griselda. But uh, <laughs> anyway, it's not just the famous names that Titus writes about in his book. Like, I was curious about some of the crews who used to control the area around where I live now, so I asked about the origins of Funk Town. Without missing a beat, Titus rattled off this little history lesson from the 80s, like it happened yesterday. So Funk Town was created by an individual who went to Roosevelt uh, Junior High and um, Oakland High with the, the individuals who ran the 23rd Avenue at the time. They're a well-known family, the, you know, the Momo family. And so when, when the individual branched off, he went and opened up shop down there across 14th Avenue. And then so, but what he did was is he, 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 he employed individuals from West Oakland so the majority of the people who started the Funk Town neighborhood migrated over there from West Oakland, from Ghost Town, from Chestnut Courts Housing Projects, which they call Two Four, and uh, some from the Acorns, and then and even some from down in uh, Campbell Village, and uh, they created Funk Town. But Funk Town's uh, method of operations was they would go to other neighborhoods and take over the neighborhood. That was their thing. They went all the way to Sabani Park and to, you know, those areas over there. And they just took over the neighborhood. And that's why they were well known because they were uh, uh, engaging in hostile takeovers. 
These kinds of hostile takeovers are one of the reasons why this neighborhood, the area around uh, San Antonio Park and 23rd Ave, got the nickname the Murder Dubs back then. But back to Titus' story, you probably noticed that he'll use phrases like the individual when he doesn't want to name a specific person. Even though the events he's describing happened decades ago, I think this kind of discretion is wise. It's important to remember that hundreds of people lost their lives over these kinds of turf battles in Oakland, and many of their families and loved ones are still around, and those kinds of wounds never really heal completely. Switching gears a bit here, another thing that Titus's book is filled with is local slang. And since everyone here in the yay area loves a good vocab lesson, here's the origin of the term knock. It's, it's funny because when I started out uh, in the game or the street life, we were indoors. So the people that were outdoors, we considered them to be shortstops. Like they were outside shortstopping our money. So... You know, uh, we would actually literally have to go outside and tell them, look, man, you can't be out here because, you, you know, you, you, you shortstop. We already got something going on over here. Get out, you know, get off the block. But what happened was is so many people were outside <laughs> that it eventually became like an open-air market. So everybody just was like, well, if I can't beat them, I'll just join them and go outside too. But when I first got into, you know, you know, that aspect of it, you know, everything was indoors. That's where the term, I don't know if you ever heard the term uh, knock, what they call a, uh, a customer is a knock. So the reason why they call a customer a knock is because they used to come to the to the spots and knock on the doors at 2 or 3 in the morning. You see what I'm saying? That's how they acquired the name of the knock, a knock. And then it went outdoors and it was like when people were outdoors on, on the blocks, we would take turns, and it was like, well, next knock on me. So we were taking turns. I should clarify that there's another definition of the term knock that is more associated with the early 2000s hyphy era. That definition refers to the sound of bass, you know, like big, booming bass blasting out of a scraper. For example, to use it in a sentence, I'll quote a two-short lyric from the song Sideshow, produced by the legendary beatmaker Tracks a Million. Ayo tracks, let me see what you got. I don't rap if the beat don't knock. Uh, Shout out to Mr. Fab, who is also featured on that classic track. And uh, of course, since now we're on the topic of sideshows, I should mention that Titus also wrote a novel called The Sideshow. The book takes place at the thematic intersection of Oakland's underground car culture and the drug world. And uh, even though it's fiction, Titus drew from his own experiences. So I asked him about how cars and drugs came to be so intertwined here. Earlier in our conversation, Titus had mentioned to me that his first job was working at an auto detailing shop, and most of his legit work was in these kinds of businesses. He even owned a mobile detailing shop for a while. Here's what he said. So Oakland has a distinctive car culture. I think that it was a natural progression for people who were in the game to take their their funds and invest them into areas that they, you know, uh, enjoy, like, you know, the car culture, uh, engine shops, paint shops, and stuff like that. And 
I think they were just stations for, you know, where, you know, offices where you can go be indoors at. You don't have to be outdoors and then you can still just do your business. You know what I mean? And uh, not be bothered by, by the law. During the post-Vietnam heroin boom, Felix Mitchell was one of the dealers who created the template of what it meant to be an inner-city drug kingpin. The people who wrote movies like New Jack City got their ideas from the newspaper headlines that shared the stories of these modern-day Al Capones with the world. The home base of Felix Mitchell's multi-million dollar operation was in East Oakland, in the project's 69th Village and Lockwood Gardens, to be exact. In Chapter 1 of Drug Lords, Titus writes, quote, Around 1973, when Big Fee got his entire crew of soldiers organized, he set up shops so viciously that both projects became like fortresses, with lookouts and gunmen on the rooftops, count houses for the money, processing units for the heroin, distribution centers for customers to receive their fix, and people directing traffic with walkie-talkies. The complexity of this organization was unprecedented at the time. Everything was designed to make Felix and his top lieutenants untouchable. And for a while, it worked. He had, he had his operation set up in the village, and pretty much everybody was kind of like on the payroll. Like, you know, so by him benefiting the people in the immediate area, other people were willing to turn a blind eye or, you know, if the police were coming, you could run to somebody's door, they'll let you in. And like all savvy CEOs, Felix Mitchell wasn't just a businessman. He was also a philanthropist. In my opinion, the thing that made him so legendary to the youth is he was like a, a Robin Hood figure. The, the man used to drive through the neighborhood and the projects and, you know, throw toys out the window, you know, basketballs, footballs, uh, he used to have uh, swimming pools set up in the summer when it was too hot to do anything. And, and, you know, he'd come through 65th or 69th Village. He'd have swimming pools out there. He'd give them bicycles. If, they, if their moms were struggling, people would go to them for money. So I think that was uh, the underlying, you know, aspect that made people gravitate toward him and kind of look up to him. But I think when Felix came in, he was a businessman. Uh, it was unusual to see a black man in the Rolls Royce at that time, and he was the guy. Um, but when I talk to dudes, I tell them, that, look, Felix was everybody in Oakland's hero at that time. Look, this isn't an unusual dynamic. Escobar, Chapo, all these major drug dealers understand that you need to spread the wealth a little bit to keep the people around you on your side. It's why you see photos of cartel leaders on people's altars and shrines next to prayer candles. The thing that really set Felix apart from all these other kingpins, and maybe the thing he's most remembered for today, was somewhat ironically, his funeral. After getting busted, Mitchell was stabbed to death in a maximum security prison. Titus writes about what happened next, and I'm going to quote from the book here. Once his body was released to the family, preparations were made for the funeral which would be an event of epic proportions that would go down in gangsterdom. On a bright Sunday morning in 1986, 
a glass-encased, horse-drawn carriage containing Big Fee's body inside a bronze-plated casket pulled up to 1615 Seminary Avenue in front of Big Mama's house. It was followed by 15 all-white Rolls-Royce silver shadows, Lincoln Continentals, and Cadillac limousines from his own personal fleet. As the procession began to take off, people started to line the streets to pay homage to the man they all loved and cherished. This would be his final lap around the town he called home. Oakland came to a halt to mourn the city's first black dawn. Several news stations and media outlets were present to witness the spectacle. The procession caravan down East 14th Street, all the way through downtown Oakland onto San Pablo Avenue. It came to a stop at Star Bethel Baptist Church. During the funeral, the song Smooth Operator by Sade was played quietly in the background. Several celebrities, as well as gangsters and players from all over, were present to pay their respects. When the funeral let out, a bright red Ferrari owned by Felix, but driven by federal agents, pulled up. An agent got out and made the sign of the cross on his chest. Then he jumped back in the car and zoomed off. Meanwhile, the man authorities believe was behind a decade of bloody Oakland drug wars and killings was buried today, and police hope his passing is going to bring to an end an era of brutality in Oakland's turbulent history. But even in the end, this funeral today was flashy and controversial, and the city really couldn't do anything about it. Channel 7's Ed Leslie has details for us. Right along in here, I need just a little bit more room, please. Just, more room. just when the East Bay thought one of its most notorious hoods was gone forever, he came back to star in a funeral production fit for a king. Alas, it was his own. A lot of the media coverage focused on the backlash to this funeral. Several city council members talked about how disgusted they were that a person responsible for so much carnage was being honored like this. Considering how heroin and drug wars hurt the community, I was wondering how Titus felt about Mitchell's legacy. To answer your question, I agree with you. I, I think that uh, there was a, a lot of suffering that he uh, caused, and I'm and I'm not in no way justifying that that was right. But uh, the Bay Area was already flooded with drugs before Felix Mitchell ever even decided that that was going to be his path in life. Stepping aside from the question of blame, Titus saw another angle to the situation. Felix Mitchell grew up in poverty, but managed to become a self-made multimillionaire by his early 20s. His bloody downfall is also a tragedy of wasted potential. If you think about Fee, like Felix Mitchell, this dude could have this dude could have ran a, a a corporation. That's how smart he was. He was a businessman. He was a businessman. He had, he had several businesses. He had Bay Area Detail on West MacArthur and Grove Street. Grove Street, which is now Martin Luther King. Uh, he had Fun City Arcade, which was like on 74th in uh, MacArthur. He also had uh, limousines, soldiers. I just want to mention one other thing about Felix Mitchell before moving on. As that news clip mentioned earlier, authorities were hoping that bringing down the town's biggest drug lord would make the streets safer. In fact, the opposite happened. According to one analyst, quote, in the absence of Mitchell's iron grip and pricing structure, drug prices plummeted, making them even more accessible. 
As a result, addiction grew and drug-related violence increased significantly. This dynamic came to be known as the Felix Mitchell Paradox. One thing that becomes clear through reading Titus's book is that battles between crews of drug dealers aren't just about money and territory. As Titus put it to me, a lot of the conflict was rooted in personal disputes, or to go even deeper, issues of pride, ego, and respect. For example, one notorious feud that resulted in more than a dozen murders, including several innocent bystanders, was sparked by a fistfight at a barbecue over at Diamond Park back in 1989. Sure, this conflict between two rival factions might have happened anyway, but this fistfight, that's all it took. One little scuffle pushed everything over the edge. And I know that sounds a little vague, so I'll just read from an old uh, San Francisco Chronicle article here to paint you a picture. Quote, Sometimes the clashes were marked by high-speed auto chases and wild shootouts in which gunmen used military-style assault rifles and at one point even a World War II-era machine gun to blaze away at each other. What I do know is that it's really not about the uh, isolated incidents. It's about the whole mentality and the mood in the era of that time. Um, because when people have a certain mentality, it, it's infectious because the people that hang around them, they, they develop that same mentality. And it's, 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 a di it's a dichotomous mentality, all or nothing. And they don't really think about the consequences. So they react, you know, in, in, in outbursts when they feel disrespected or uh, so on and so forth. So... It's, it's, it's basically a mentality that needs to change. During our conversation, Titus said something that caught me by surprise. My understanding, based on, you know, looking at homicide rates and stats like that, was that the 80s and early 90s were the worst time for crime in Oakland. So I said something along the lines of, things are pretty crazy now, but it's not as bad as back in the day. Titus had a different opinion. The streets of Oakland have changed drastically, and I, th and I just think that the, the, the quality of crime has, has been reduced so far to the point that, you know, they're breaking in cars. There's one guy inside the car. There's another guy under the car stealing the uh, catalytic converter. You know, they're pushing old ladies down. You know what I mean? Um, and these things were not allowed, you know, during the era that I speak on in Judd Wells of Oakland. And, you know, you had a couple of dudes that would, you know, kind of like do something drastic, and then they would be penalized for it in the neighborhood. Like, you couldn't do that. Like, you couldn't snatch somebody's purse and run down the street and come by you know, drugs with that money because the people that you're buying it from might be related to that person and it, and it won't work out for you. You know what I mean? And, and from what I hear and understand now, it's just like, it's like lawless out there in the streets of Oakland. Hearing this perspective, I, I think it's up for debate. You know, over the years, I've talked to some elders who lived in rough neighborhoods during the height of the crack era, and they told me about being scared to leave their homes because of all the shootings. 
newspaper files are filled with stories of innocent people getting hit by stray bullets during drive-bys, in front of corner stores, and even coming out of funeral parlors. But yeah, things don't feel great now, even though drive-bys are far less common. So at the end of our conversation, I asked Titus if he had any words to share. And I'm going to close out this episode with his message, because even though he doesn't live in Oakland anymore, he still loves this place. And he cares. He really cares about the kids who might try to follow in his footsteps. Being gangsters and stuff like that, you know, they don't have a 401k plan for that <laughs> or, or medical benefit, medical benefits. So, you know, uh, after all was said and done, I mean, for a young person growing up, uh, I think it would just be a better idea. And this is coming from me, Titus Lee Barnes, a guy who's been in the streets forever and paid every different price for being in the streets, you know what I mean? It's just better. You make life easier for yourself if you apply yourself, you educate yourself, and then you pursue your, you, you make plans and then you pursue those plans turning into goals. And then you live your life responsibly and comfortably and don't cause anybody else any harm. I just think uh, that you'll love yourself for it at the end of the day and your children and your grandchildren will uh, benefit as well from you being that person. So, yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. If you want to know more about local history, find out about upcoming events and all that fun stuff, guess what? I just launched a new Substack newsletter. It's free. I only send it out about once a month. And uh, yeah, if you dig the show, I think you'll enjoy the newsletter. You can find the subscribe link in the upper right-hand corner of my website, which of course is eastbayyesterday.com. Extra big shout out this month to everyone who's been supporting this show through Patreon and spreading the word about East Bay yesterday through social media. You guys are keeping the show alive. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you also just make me feel so special. Every new donation, every mention, it warms my heart. If you out there listening right now can support the show, please just take a minute to subscribe to the Patreon or post about the podcast on Instagram or whatever. Just leave a review, anything. It all helps. Music for this episode came from Mark Pantoja and Justin Lee. Oh, and I should also add that Titus, Mr. Titus Lee Barnes, has a brand new novel out. It's called Soul Strippers, and you can find it on Amazon. Okay, that's about it. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you want to hear more East Bay Yesterday. So Jerry Brown... Uh... And here's a little fun fact. He used to live in Ghost Town. He used to stay in the Sears building on 27th and Telegraph, which they call that Uptown now. But yeah, he stayed there when he when he when um this when he was the mayor. This is right after they had converted the, the Sears building into lofts, uh, right on 27th and Telegraph. And uh and the guy was fearless. He used to walk his uh, German Shepherd with his little Levi's and New Balances on. Yeah, I've seen him several times. Uh, yeah, he stayed right there.